Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say good morning to one of you watch, any of you watching or listening online. If you've got a Bible this morning, we'd love you virtually or physically to turn to the book of Psalms again. We're going to be in Psalm 47. Now, this is week nine in our summer series called Let the Light In. And so far as we've been learning, the Psalms sort of is the cry and the heartbeat of every generation of God followers since its inception. We found out that the Psalms took a thousand years to actually write. We found out there are many authors. We've been using all sorts of different illustrations like a golf bag or Netflix. There are different styles that you choose in different seasons and they're intentionally written so we have the vocabulary and the understanding of how to express ourselves before God in every season of life. Now so far we've looked at the Psalms of creation and the songs of ascent and the Psalms of wisdom. We've looked at praise and worship Psalms and Psalms of confidence and the Psalms last week of rage. What we scholars call the imprecatory psalms. But today we're going to look at a different group that we have not discovered yet at all. They are what scholars call the kingship psalms or the royal psalms or other parts call them the enthronement psalms. These are psalms that were written by multiple authors to celebrate the kingship of God. They celebrate the enthronement of God. These psalms are sung and read when God's people crown God, recognize God as king and reaffirm God as king and swear allegiance to God as king. But as I'm starting to already say this, we have a significant problem on our hands sitting in this room right now. Not one of us in this room that I know about knows what it's like to live under a king's rule. Now, yes, of course, we are Canadians and we have a queen, right? Yes or no? We have a queen? Okay. And she's a good queen. I think next year she'll be the longest reigning monarch in English history. And she is wonderful and she's kind and has a really cool accent and a cool crown. But she is a figurehead. She is not a full monarch. Yet throughout all of history, most nations were actually ruled by a king or a queen, an absolute ruler, or they were ruled by what they were called a high king or a khan or a chief king. That is that there were many kings and many lords, but there was one high king that all other kings and lords and those who had been given authority would sit under. See, here's our problem this morning as we get going, near we end, as we near the end of the series. To understand the Bible, and not just understand the Bible, but to participate in a biblical worldview, that is to know God and enjoy Him, we must see ourselves and God through the lens of sovereignty, not through the lens of our modern, democratic, anything-goes-I-have-the-final-say lens. See, God is an absolute ruler. He is not a democratically elected official we get to remove when we're not so pleased with his current policy. But here is sort of the crux of the matter, and here is the key to success, if you want to say it like that. When God's kingly rule is understood, and not just understood, but welcomed, embraced, and accepted, that is where human beings, no matter who you are, find your greatest purpose, your greatest freedom, and your greatest life. It's found in the kingship of God. 
Now, Psalm 47 is one of the shorter enthronement and or kingship psalms. We're going to look at that today. And here's how it begins. It says, clap your hands, all you nations, and shout to God with cries of joy. Now, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard that this morning or sung that. And most of us, when we read that at face value, think it means clap your hands, literally. All praise, applause, applause. God is truly among us. So let's celebrate. Get your party on. The king is here. Well, that's partly true. But actually, we miss the main intention of this verse when we read it just like that. Actually, it reads in Hebrew more like this. Strike your hands. Confirm. All people should make a contract. All people everywhere should shake their hands to seal the deal in an agreement. Now, who should do this? Well, shockingly, unexpectedly, though this is written for the Jews, by the Jews, it does not say, do this, O Israel, do this, O Hebrew people, do this, sons and daughters of Abraham. It says, you nations must do this. Now, nations is not a geopolitical or geographic uh, political sort of statement. It's not China. It's not Canada. It's not Uzbekistan. This reads like this. All people who make up every family group on earth, all ethnicities, all people on earth everywhere should agree what? That there is only one God and he is the God in Israel and all nations should agree and worship and should shout to this God only because there's actually only one true living God and he actually is a good king and a loving king and so you should do it with cries of joy. All people everywhere, no matter who they are, what religion they have grown up under, should willingly, joyfully come in and under the kingship of God. Does that make a difference when you read that verse? See, this is the main storyline in the Bible. This echoes the heartbeat of God and the echoes of his promises in times past. It has always been the heart of God himself to restore and to bring back and to heal the nations under God's loving reign and rule. And to understand the promise here and understand the call and command of God, the king, for all people in the psalm, we have to actually travel back. We have to travel back to the very first book in the Bible. We need to go back to actually when the human family, uh, in their mind, dethroned God. As one voice actually rejected the kingship of God. Because this psalmist is directly referring, when he writes this, to the story of Babel in Genesis 11. Do you want to turn there real quick to Genesis 11? Now, before you're turning there, let me just speak about this. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. All things were right. Now, think about this. They walked with God and they loved him. But here's the critical thing. Adam and Eve knew their role and knew their place. They knew God's role and his place. And in that moment, that place was perfection, was harmony, was shalom. But that peace was shattered and broken when they sinned. What is sin? Saying to God the King, we don't want your rule over our life. We have the right to be like God. And so they hid and they said no to God's kingly reign and rule. Then Cain and Abel took place and Cain rejected God's kingly rule by murdering the very first human being, Abel, and killing his brother 
father. And then the time of Noah comes where all the peoples of the earth have systematically declared that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want. And we, by our thoughts and our actions, we, by our invented uh, religion and our view of morality, we absolutely reject God as king and we do not want God's kingly reign and rule. And as God looked over all the earth, only one family not only wanted to know him, but wanted his lordship. And then the flood took place. Well, between 150 and 180 years later, the story gets worse. 180 years later, there is not one family now that looks for God, wants to walk with God, wants to know his love, or wants to walk under his kingly rule. Now the people as one family have gathered together and they have chosen formally to undo God's work, to say no to God as king. The nations have declared, we now know how to rule ourselves. Genesis 11.1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As I've preached on this before, this is not saying there weren't multiple other languages. Of course there were. But there was like one cross-cultural language they all shared. Very much like what English is today in the trade, uh, trade circles globally. So there is a universal language, though there are many languages spoken. Now the evil here is not that they shared a language. It becomes the vehicle for evil. Verse 4, they said, come. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Like I've said before in other sermons, this is the great human project. It is unity of unbelief expressed through city and tower. Now the tower was like a modern skyscraper. It was a tower for religious purposes and it's a temple. And notice the tower was to reach what? Into the heavens with its peaks in the heavens, to rival the heavens, to pierce the heavens. In other words, we as humans say we can live among the gods or God himself. We, by our own ability, can access the divine. We will do this, and we will do this by religion, what we do, and we will what? Force open the heavens ourselves. If God has blocked us from Eden, then we will not go sideways anymore. We will go directly up and notice, we will make a name for ourselves. Can you hear it in the language? Fame, reputation, immortality, pride, glory, power, hubris. We are godlike. We are king and God is not. And notice, we will not. We refuse to be scattered over the whole face of the earth. We will build a city. We will build our own security. We will build our own religion and we will remove our need for God. Now, if you know your Old Testament, God had said what? That we were called as human beings not to gather in one place, but to actually scatter across the whole earth to be fruitful and multiply. And so now what we see in this moment is the inception of two things. Here we have the birth of religion, and here we have the birth of humanism. Religion says, I'm saved by what I do. And humanism says simply, as human beings, we have all the answers we need. And it is a deadly combination every single time. But what's amazing about radical secularism and humanism and religion and all of its forms, they together share one broken common core, and it is this. We don't need God as what? King. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. The Lord said, 
If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God doesn't see this as a joke. God doesn't laugh or ridicule. He takes this very seriously. This is a divine threat. This is a threat to divine kingly rule. Why? Because we're actually made in the image of God. We actually reflect the one whose we are made in the image of. In other words, there's great power of thought and creativity and ability. This verse takes very seriously a fallen humanity made in the image of creator and their source and ability for evil. We became unchecked, unbridled, unseeing, and sinful. So God says within himself, come, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. See, God understood something so brilliantly at this moment, as he always does. He knew that if he wiped out the city or took out the tower, it wouldn't change anything. Because this was a heart situation, not an architecture problem. And so he severs the common language. I love when one scholar wrote this. The linguistic diversification at Babel is presented as God's merciful way to avoid destroying the whole human race, determined to rebel against his kingship. In agreement between God and Noah, he had promised that God would never destroy the world again. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them there from all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, or Babel, because the Lord confused their language of the whole earth. Now, many of us read this, and we miss that God is love, and God is mercy, and God is long-suffering, and God choose, chose not to destroy us, but actually to redeem us by breaking our language But millennium later, the psalmist now writing the kingship psalms with this in their mind begins again to remind the world about the echoes of Eden and the promises of God to Noah and actually the promises of what is to come. See, this is actually what Psalm 47 is really reading like. Now all you scattered people, all you rebellious runaway sons and daughters, All peoples, all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities, you come back. You come back and you submit and agree and you align under God the King. Come under his reign and rule because there is freedom there. Come because there is purpose there. Come because there is hope and healing. Remember all you people who God actually is. Not who you want him to be, nor who you think he might or might not be. No, no, he says, now back to the psalm, verse 2, he says, No, no, let me remind you, for the Lord most high is awesome, the great king over all the earth. Oh yes, there's many kings on the earth. Yes, every generation has had politicians, scholars, dictators, presidents, prime ministers. There are inventors and scientists that inspire us. Every generation is filled with the great ones, the ones that inspire love or bring us to dread and fear. There are always those who are filled with great wisdom or military might or economic prowess. And oh yes, also beyond that, there are many spiritual forces that call themselves gods, principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. And history is full and littered with the attempts of humans building towers into the heavens. But the psalmist reminds us this morning, God is not like 
any other. Every other king and every other force, human, spiritual, or otherwise, all have starting points. But our God does not have a starting point because our God is uncreated. And he is not just a high God. He is the most high God. No one can reach him. No one can touch him. No one is like him because he is the high king and all other kings are far underneath his feet. And then he says this, the Lord most high is what? Say the word loud. Awesome. In our culture, this word is used for everything. Guy, your car is awesome. You chew gum, that's awesome. Your hair is awesome. This word, no, no. But we need to understand the power of this old word because it has actually been hijacked. This is how it reads. Our God is fearful, fear-invoking. Our God is overwhelming. This is what awesome means. Our God is grand and breathtaking and splendid and tremendous and remarkable and awe-inspiring. Our God is awesome, which means astounding and all other gods and people all other will be and must be humbled under his presence the lord most high is the great king over all the earth God is not just Israel's God. He does not just take his place beside all the real and invented gods of all the people. He does not sit as one option in the pantheon of religious ideas and expressions. He is not one option in a myriad of philosophical wonderings and scientific discoveries. No, no. Our God, the only true God, the God who has always been, is the king over what? All the earth. Now, as this psalmist is writing this and reminding himself of the brokenness of the nations and God's want of their restoration, he stops. And at this moment, he gets very, very personal in Israel's personal history with God. He stops just for a moment to remind the audience of what God has uniquely done for Israel. It said he subdued the nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. He says, oh yes, let's be very honest. The God of the nations, yes, he chose us uniquely. Yeah, he did bring us out of Egypt. Yes, he did defeat all the nations and all their gods. God put them under our feet. It is undeniable that God had elected us out of all the nations of the earth, and he loves us uniquely. But don't forget something as you hear that. This election, this undeserved love, was not just for them to celebrate or to sit in or look down upon all the other families and nations of the earth. No, no, see, the reason why God called Israel in the first place and loved them uniquely is because they were called to become the inception point. They were called to become the ground and the vehicle, the means in which God could not only be known, but where God's kingly rule could be displayed again to all the nations and their gods could be actually exposed for what they were and the true God be revealed. It's the cry of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you, Israel, a light for all non-Jews that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So the psalmist reminds us that God is king and reminds us that all nations should agree that he's king and reminds us of Israel's unique place in that order. But then in verse 5, it takes a very royal turn, a very personal moment. Here in this little verse, it is filled with images so unfamiliar to all of us, but so normal for them. God, he says, God has ascended amidst the shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sounding of shofars, of ram trumpets. 
Now, this is enthronement language. This is coronation language. This is like a royal wedding. The image here is that God himself, though he is everywhere, chooses to walk among his people. He walks through the crowd and they are shouting with joy that he is present. And then in, his pre- in their presence, he ascends and he goes up and sits on the throne. And all other lords and kings sit in their thrones underneath him. See, this is the picture of an ancient oriental monarch walking through his people, then being seated on the throne, which is above all thrones, and the people celebrating and worshiping. The only modern equivalent I can give to us this morning is this. A few years ago, there was a wedding. There was a wedding that was the most watched wedding in history. Do you know which one I'm talking about? There was a man named William and a woman named what? Catherine, right? And they got together, and what happened? They got married. Now, this royal wedding, as they gathered together, is the most watched thing, I think, probably in history. They estimate that two billion people watched the royal wedding. Isn't that unbelievable? There was 1,900 guests in the church. There was millions on the streets of London, and then hundreds of millions on YouTube and all sorts of other social media outlets. Now, do you remember what happened when they got married? The place freaked out. People were yelling, right, all around the world, having parties. But when they left the church and they were going through the crowds, the crowds were shouting. They were celebrating. They They were welcoming them. They were throwing, well, very nice things at them, right? Like it was an unbelievable moment. That is the image of what is taking place, that God is walking through his people and his people are viscerally responding to his presence. In other words, we welcome God. We host his presence. There is such a huge noise because of the singing and the shouting. In other words, the verse is saying God is actually really here and he's the king and we're enthroning the king, and we're affirming his coronation again, worthy, like we've sang this morning, worthy, 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 full of joy and celebration, we gather around the king. It's like the verse that was read today, Psalm 24, 7, lift up your head, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Well, who is the king of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is is the king of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. And so this idea of radical, getting way beyond your middle class North American comfort, celebration breaks out as people are literally yelling and shouting and welcoming. And that is why the psalmist says in verse 6, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. So you think he wants you to sing maybe? Yep. Okay, he does. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over all the nations and God is seated on his holy throne. Now his throne is an image also very foreign to us. But a throne is the place of absolute authority. Where there is a king or queen who sit on a throne who is an absolute monarch, it is the place of judgment. It is the place of final decision. Do you remember what happened when Isaiah the prophet saw not just God but his throne? He was undone in a second. And so the psalmist says, you sing and you praise the God who loves you, but you remember he is seated in the place of final and ultimate authority. And then right at the end, it happens. Right at the end of this little psalm, one line, 
One line that heals history and one line that gave hope in the moment that the psalmist was actually penning the psalm and one line that actually told us what would come and actually as we're sitting here today is already happening. It says this right at the end. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God and he is greatly exalted. Do you see it? And do you catch it? And do you understand the power of this? Because there's a direct effect almost on all of us sitting in this room. The nations have now become what? The people of God. Under the God of Abraham, all the other kings are now owned by God. And he has allowed them to actually join his family once again. See, the kingship psalms remind us that God is king and that he is full authority and he's fantastic and beautiful and awe-inspiring and fear-invoking and he has final say and you can't vote him off the island because he owns all the islands. It's done. But the story doesn't end in the kingship psalms, nor does the story fully begin in Babel. See, the ultimate fulfillment of this group of psalms the restoration of the nations under God's living rule, the final reversal of Eden and Babel, all the other gods under the throne of God, the defeat of all of God's enemies, the calling of an elect people to show the world, the making, all of, uh, the making of all people his people, giving them the ability to become heirs to Abraham and the promises of Abraham. All of it finds full meaning and full purpose. It unites in and around Jesus, the Son of God, the God-made flesh. The mighty God, the Lord, the most high God, the King, the God of Abraham has actually come to us, become one of us to show us who he truly is and why his kingship and kingdom is worth it. God became flesh. Jesus is God. And he brings the Father's kingdom back physically on earth once again, starting in the human heart. And he invites the human race back under the kingly rule of God. See, this is why these Psalms are so important. Do you remember what happened at Christmas? At Christmas when the story broke out that God had invaded and come back once again? What is the very first thing the angels spoke of and chanted to the shepherd? They say, we bring you good news of great joy for the Jews. No, for who? All people, all family groups. See, this is what was promised in the kingship psalms. What did Simeon, the old priest, who had been told by God that before he died, he would see the Messiah. What is the very song he sung in the temple? Luke 2, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now may dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of some people. No, all people, a light for the revelation of non-Jews and for the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death, and just before he ascends into heaven, these are his last words to his movement that he birthed. He says, you go, you go and you make disciples of what? Say it loud, what is it? All what? Nations, all people groups, not China and Uzbekistan, all family groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. Do you notice it? Kingship. Teaching them to live under the reign and rule of God. Everything I've commanded you and I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And then it happens. Jesus ascends into heaven and actually what is spoken about in Psalm 47 fully begins to take 
take place. Because what did God the Father do to Jesus when he ascended? Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. See, Jesus is the King of kings and the what? The Lord of lords. He's the great high king. But the story's not done yet. Because the story that was promised before the beginning of time, that was rebelled against in Genesis, that actually was cried about in the Psalms, that began to be fulfilled in Jesus, actually gets further meaning and more power when you go into the book of Acts. Because Jesus had said to a group of people, you wait, because my Father and I are going to send what we have promised. And it says in Acts chapter 2, what? That the Holy Spirit came from heaven on the gathered group of people who were praying. You can read it there in Acts 2. Tongues of fire began to rest on each person. And then they all began to speak in different languages they did not know. And it says in Acts 2 that there were God-fearing Jews from every part of the earth. And they said, how are we hearing the wondrous things of God in our own language? in our own tongue. And Peter began to, be, began to describe this. And he says, look, God, the king, is bringing back all nations under his good, loving, holy kingship, first by his calling, then by the work of Jesus, now by the means of the Holy Spirit. See, I've taught this before, but let me give this to you again because it will inspire us to understand what we've been given. One scholar wrote it this way. At Babel, God was deeply involved in fracturing the human race, shattering its unity and scattering people over the face of the earth, even though it was an act of grace and preserving the lives of those who were there. But God's mission now through his church is that he will seek to reverse the fragmentation that he started at Babel. He will create, notice, a new unity out of human diversity. In Jesus, a new humanity will be created and the old dividing walls will now be abolished through his Holy Spirit. That's why Paul would write these words that summarize our whole movement. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew or non-Jew, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in who? Christ Jesus. Now here's how it all ties together. Ready? What was our theme this year as a church? What was it? Kingdom come. What did we learn about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God implies a king. The kingdom of God implies a kingdom. And we learned that Jesus brought the kingdom, God the Father's kingdom to earth. And now the psalmist cry and his promise that all the nobles of the earth will become part of the people of God is now happening in this moment. Do you see the whole story now? The kingdom of God, like we learned, is not a place. It's not the nation of Israel. It's not the church. It's not found in geography. The kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed, embraced, and accepted through Jesus and his spirit. So if you're a Christian, you are a direct fulfillment of Psalm 47 because you're a member of the kingdom, because you've welcomed Jesus to be your savior and your king. And Jesus has made you right and gives you ability to walk right back into the throne room of God the Father with freedom, with confidence, with no, absolutely no fear at all. Because when Jesus shows up, the kingdom shows up. When the kingdom shows up, 
God the Father shows up. When God the Father shows up, Eden gets restored once again, and Babel disappears. Do you see the story? See, the enthronement psalms show us who God is, and the New Testament shows how the enthronement psalms are worked out. And by the way, that's actually not how the story completely ends. Because there is one moment that is coming. There is one moment that has not taken place yet that will take place, which will be the ultimate culmination of the enthronement psalms. They will find their final full fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Many of you have read this before, but now pair it with the psalms called royal or enthronement psalms, Revelation 7-9. And after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from what? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing before, oh, notice where they're standing before and under, the throne and before Jesus the Lamb. And they're wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. In other words, he is king and to Jesus the Lamb. That is the end statement of what begins all the way back in the beginning and it's cried out in the Psalms. Why do we use and when do we need the Psalms of royalty? Well, here's a few things to think about as you pull out this golf club as you use these. Number one, they invite us and remind us to celebrate the kingship of God. Notice this in this Psalm. God is mentioned 11 times in nine verses. And five times we, the hearer and reader, are called to make music about his kingship. See, much of the time when we sing, we sing about God's love. We sing about God's salvation, which is all needed and good. But notice this. This is a direct call to continue in song and in word to acknowledge his kingship. In other words, church, you clap your hands and you agree and you shout and you sing praises and you be loud and boisterous. Yes, even make a joyful noise that threatens your comfortability. Because what? Our God is lost and our God is elevated, and our God is not a local God, and our God isn't a human invention. Our God does not have authority in part. He is unparalleled. He is the ruler. He's the true emperor. He's the only lasting sovereign. He really is what? The king of kings and the lord of lords. Nothing seen or unseen is away from his dominion. God is grand, unmovable, and undisputed. And this amazing, this awesome, fear-inspiring being named God is also so, though king, love, holy, good, and trustworthy. How could you not celebrate a king like that? How could you not stand and just say for a moment, the one who is all-consuming is also loving and good. There is no other king like him. These remind us to be stirred up about his kingship and to celebrate against, celebrate this. But also, these psalms remind us of something that is more difficult. What is implied in this psalm, what is implied in the work of Jesus and everything else is that we're willing to submit to God's kingship. See, if God is king, then becoming a Christian is about God's reign and rule. So in other words, there can be no moment like Adam and Eve where we hide from God and there can be no moment of Babel in our life where we say no to Jesus is king. Actually, this is what we only get to say to God now. There is no more no or maybe. There is only Yes. I've preached this before. Let me say it again. Christian, if you are really a Christian this morning, just hear this and embrace this. You are a slave to God. 
through Jesus. You're not your own. You've been bought with a high price. And obedience is the key to liberation. And true freedom comes from slavery and willingly submitting under the kingship of God. God is king and living in Jesus is like living in and under his father's amazing kingly rule. But we must live our lives with this one all-consuming perspective. I am a slave to Jesus. I am under God the father's kingly rule. See, if you don't choose to live with this one view of God's love and our ownership of him, we will live Christian lives that are not radical, that are not authentic. Actually, they will become powerless, cheap versions of our faith. But see, our prayer in this church is what? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about what that means. In heaven, there is never a no to God. Have you thought about that? In heaven, there is no maybe or debate. There is just yes, because I trust you. And our prayer as a church is we're asking God to do something uniquely in every human being connected to C4. We're praying that God would show up in great power in a season across our whole church and then asking God to do something in Durham we have never seen. But our prayer is this, oh God, would you through your son and your spirit bring your kingly reign and rule? May there only now be yeses, no more noes or maybes. Do you know what you're praying? The kingship psalms remind us of how good he is, and the kingship psalms remind us how strong he is, and the kingship psalms remind us also of how we are called to live with and underneath him, and realize that since he is a good king, he is a great king, we should never resist him, because in the end, he only does what is good, not evil. But here's the last thing. I just want to end with this, and then we're going to respond in song. Here it is. Verse 5. You got your Bible there? Do you want to look at it just real quick? Verse 5, I don't understand all of this yet, but I just want to say this. It says in the scriptures here, not just in this psalm, but all the kingship psalms, we enthrone God. Now, yes, as Christians, we acclaim him, and yes, we welcome him and we celebrate him, but there is something that the Lord has been teaching me in this church, I think, for two years that we don't get yet. And here it is. Every time we gather as believers, we actually host God's kingly presence. We not only just say, yeah, yeah, he's here. No, no, he's here. We receive the king. We welcome the king. We entertain the king. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So here's all I need to say. There's no grand statement now. I just want to say this. As we use the kingship psalms and read them, we as a church should start praying like this. Lord, A, help me to celebrate your kingship and be good with it. Be Lord, is there any place I'm resisting your kingship? Help me. But here's the prayer I think that's very appropriate, not only just for this moment, for where we're going as a church, a very, especially us who've grown up in church for years, liturgical tradition, free tradition, it doesn't matter. Just to start saying this, Lord God Almighty, High King, found through Jesus by the Spirit, would you begin to open my eyes and my, myself to actually know that you're present. Because it says in the scriptures where God's presence is, there is what? Freedom. And we actually host the presence of God. And so we need to start saying to the Lord beyond the style of songs we sing, or no, no, Lord, 
I need you to open my eyes. And if you want a passage to really wrestle on through this is read Luke 23. When Jesus rose from the dead, this is directly connected. When Jesus rose from the dead and he walked into the upper room with those people, it said that they were filled with joy and they did not believe. Even though Jesus was physically right there, they were like, Jesus is here and I still don't believe it because of my joy. And it says that Jesus opened their minds and then they knew he was there. So here's what I want you just to pray with me as we end this moment. And it's a prayer for this moment as we sing, but it's a prayer for our church long term. And here it is. Just pray it with me. Lord, great king over all people, great king over all principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities, great king over all politicians, all people of decision-making power, found in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, you who reverse Babel through your work, Here's my prayer for myself and us as a community. Lord, would you begin to open our eyes and ourselves to your actual presence when we gather? Like, Lord, we are distracted. We are tired. We have all sorts of set regulations and rules how we think we will encounter something. Like, Lord, I am asking among my brothers and sisters that you would begin to let us actually know that you are kingly here, you're wholly present. So when we gather week in and week out, no matter who's preaching or leading or how our week has been, when we walk in, we will actually not encounter the idea of God, but we will encounter his kingly presence. Lord, we pray, because we've used this before out of Zechariah 8, that your presence would be so found in this church for a significant period of time that people would begin to grab people from our church and say, I must go with you because we have heard the Lord is truly with you. So Lord, hear our simple prayers. Lord, show us your glory sincerely. Show us your presence. Or let me put it this way. Lord, help us to learn how to host you when you come week in and week out. Oh, praise be to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who is King forever and ever and ever, and who is good. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.